do in the winter. Hello and welcome to this, the third in a series of podcasts from the island of Mull. Today I'm talking to Nick Turnbull. Nick, originally from Edinburgh, came to the Isle of Mull in the 1970s to start fishing lobsters. And he's fished all sorts of different things, as you hear, but eventually in the 90s he developed an oyster farm near Croig, uh, at the north end of the island, uh, past Dervig, not far from where we live. In this conversation we talk about many different things, including the history of uh, his life fishing here, the little bit about his family life, there's a really good ghost story in there as well. I recorded this podcast on Sunday uh, over at Nick's house and I've edited it on uh, the ferry trip to Barra where I've been working. So I've been from Mull to Barra uh, over the course of the last couple of days, worked in Barra and I'm now sitting in the car queue uh, waiting to go back to, to Mull from Barra having just finished editing the podcast on the ferry and my heat's mince so please excuse me if I'm talking waffle. This podcast has been sponsored by the Island Bakery again, so thank you very much to the Island Bakery for their support. You can follow them on social media and you can also visit them at islandbakery.co.uk. There's a strange little beeping noise, I'm not sure what that is, I'm really sorry. Anyway, um, I am going to hand you over now to Nick. Thank you very much. Nick. Can I ask, who are you? <laughs> yeah, int- interesting starting question. Who am I? Yeah, well, I mean, I am who I am now, but uh, yeah, from my my background uh, is uh, a middle class Edinburgh lad, who um, whose father was uh, a, a stockbroker in Edinburgh, Gosh. a frustrated stockbroker in Edinburgh who. I think looked out the window the whole time to the sea and within a short time he spent more time on boats than he ever did in his office. He retired early um, and he retired to a wee sailing boat uh, but he always tinkered with fishing boats. He really, he'd always had this notion that he would he would like to get out and go fishing and he'd He'd, uh, weekends he would he would go up the east coast to Gardenstown and places like that as he'd see a boat for sale and he'd he'd go over this boat and always with this wee hankering for a fishing boat <laughs> but he'd spent too many years being a businessman in Edinburgh really to uh, yeah. to uh, to do anything seriously. However, I suppose some of that must have brushed off on me. Mm-hmm without a shadow of a doubt um, and uh, I wasn't very successful at school uh, I went to a, a school that uh, um, some mass produced university folk <laughs> university uh, fodder for fodder but uh, not for me so uh, a brief course on in hotel management and um, a brief couple of years working in a hotel made me decide that this definitely wasn't something I wanted to do in my life and um, I met up with George who'd been at my school as well and who had dropped out of university George, 
I actually can't remember what he was doing at uni. I, th I think he was doing maths. Whoa. He was very good at maths. Um, and uh, uh, we said, right, what's, what are we going to do here? And you know, I said, well, I've always really fancied fishing <laughs> lobsters. And um, so we, you know, after a short time, we happened around Mull to, f to find Croig Harbour, which was empty, there were no boats here then. And uh, the wonderful Mrs. Bray, mm. who at that time was trying to repopulate what was left of this decaying estate, really. What year was that? It's that would have been 1970. And uh, nobody, no one was really interested in property or land at that time, and uh, she was keen. She, yeah, it's quite a remarkable woman, really, in her own way, because she was keen to see smoke coming out of chimneys again. Very keen to have people living and working here. Um, I'm not sure that she totally realised that dream because inevitably some folk had taken advantage of her. However, a uh, £50 plot Ooh. and uh, <laughs> a pile of stones. Gosh. And, uh, you yeah, know, so we've got somewhere to stay. Yeah. And a harbour there. It's literally a pile of stones, though. A pile of stones, yeah. A pile of rubble with, well, it wasn't rubble, actually. There was still the remains of, you know, what, I, I'm not sure whether this actual ruin had been a house or whether it had been a buyer, but... Certainly it was a ruin. And this is where we're sitting right now, your home. And this is exactly where we're sitting right now. And the stones here are the same stones that were rebuilt. Um, and that was by yourself? Myself and we, Jordan, then eventually myself to finish it off. And, and George got his own property. Um, and at that time, there were quite a few people, mainly from London, actually, um, at a various corner, it was called the Artist's Corner, hmm. or the Artist's something, I can't remember exactly what it was, Artist's Corner or Hippie's Corner, because mm -hmm. there were a lot from London who would come up um, from Hornsey, I think, uh, Hornsey Art College, yeah. and uh, uh, were doing sort of similar things, building houses. So there we go, We in those days you could just buy a fishing wee boat, uh, you didn't need licences, you didn't need... Um, uh, qualifications, you didn't need any safety requirements, you bought a boat, you made your creels and you could go fishing. So how did you learn that? So you're a, a, a young man who worked in uh, the hotel industry yeah. in Edinburgh, how did you go from that to uh, making your own creels? How, how did you learn? Interesting, uh, well I have to say that the first creels we made as, as um, some of our peers would say it was a wonder that the lobsters didn't break their neck getting into them. <laughs> but uh, these guys were great. Um, you know, Biggie and MacDonald, uh, who had been the Elva Ferryman, and then uh, got his own lobster boat, the, the Fair Maid, mm -hmm. uh, which incidentally we worked on for, for one winter um, at the Sprats. Sprats uh, were pair troll, you pair troll for them. Uh, so his uh, partner was um, Wee Alistair McLean, who uh, had the Manx Beauty to start with and then got a lovely boat built by nobles of Girvan, famous boat builders in Girvan. And 
the Aquila was the name of that boat. Oh yes, there's still an Aquila about now. And there is. Well, he had he had an Aquila after that, that but that boat's still in existence today. Goodness, um, beautiful boat, varnished boat. Uh, and anyway, wooden, wooden, wooden not boat, metal. yeah, wooden boat. And um, to, so we pair troll one winter with them, um, which was an interesting experience. Um, Fair Maid was really well. Fair Maid was the same age, more or less the same age as me, a year younger than me, actually, <laughs> 1949, and uh, really passed her best for for doing trawl work or heavy work. It was fine for the lobsters, but uh, so. Um, what what was the the market for sprats at the time? What was that for? So the sprats were that was interesting because the Norwegians. Um, uh, well, there were two markets. There was a local, uh, uh, not a local, but a British market, and there was a Norwegian market, which was a really good market. So the Norwegians actually sent over two uh, two uh, Klondikers, ah. King Frost and Queen Frost, and uh, they alternated while while one was away uh, with the frozen sprats to the canning factory in Norway. Mm-hmm. The other one was here, mm-hmm. getting the sprats off the boat. So. They actually anchored up behind um, Eorsa. In Loch Nakiel. In Loch Nakiel, which is where the, the bulk of the sprat fishing was going on in that area. Uh, so it was really handy. They could catch the sprats and go straight down to the, the Klondiker and unload them straight onto the Norwegians. Fantastic. Um, it's quite an interesting bit of history, that. And of course, the Norwegians were very fussy yeah. about the quality of the sprats. It had the oil. Uh, content had to be just right. How do you measure the oil content of a sprat just coming off a boat? Well, um, I'm told that they, um, the way they used to do it was they would they would put them in barrels of uh, brine. Ah, uh, buoyancy. Salt. Put them in salt and mm-hmm. wait for the brine uh-huh. to get into brine and then they would drink the brine. Oh, right, they do it by taste. And they would do it by taste. They knew the fat content. Oh, fuck it. What? Uh, <laughs> uh, and then they would be all fine for everybody to land to them. Yeah, um, I'm not absolutely certain on that part, <laughs> but it's it sounds... a, a bit of witchcraft there. Yeah, <laughs> sounds like a good, uh, yeah. a good. But that was certainly what I was told. Wow! And so it was really good, and um, there was a, they had a, a many years good fishing behind uh, down those lochs, uh, for sprats, and uh, yeah, the old fair maid. Well, she she would um, open up when they filled her with uh, sprats, because she was quite lightly built, really. She was built um, uh, for a different kind of fishing, for herring fishing in Loch Fine, really. Oh, gosh. And uh, so when when they put the boards across the top of the hold, when she was full, the boards used to fall <laughs> fall down because she'd spread some. So it wasn't long before Big Ian got another boat, another similar boat to Alistair's called the, the Frey, which was also built in Garvin. Lovely boat too. Both of those were were uh, beautiful boats, varnished, really good sea boats. How how far out did you go? Did you go sort of out towards Colin Tidy or did you go out yeah, deeper yeah, than that? Yeah, no, we went out. We would we would go quite far because sometimes the sprats wouldn't be in the loch. So uh, and you know they could fish for herring too if they could catch herring. Oh, fantastic! Uh, uh, which is quite an interesting story. It's a digression, really, but. Oh, that's um, fine. Um, the following year, I think, or the one or two years after that, we we said to the boy, you know, to Alistair and Ian, would they keep us some herring for bait? 
which they duly did. And they came in one night and, and the deal was that we, um, we uh, take them to the uh, Mishnish and them and the crew and um, the payment was in, in drink. Oh, that's very, very equitable trade. <laughs> so, of course, we had to be part of that. Um, oh, gosh. And uh, so the evening went on and the night went on and um, uh, the old Land Rover. So we, were, we knew we had to make several, two or three trips with the herring back to Croydon and salt it down the following morning. Yeah. But anyway, time went on and the missionation time went on and the drink flowed. And eventually it shut and uh, George and I got into the um, Land Rover set off up the Ace Bray and it was very icy that night. It right. was late, it, was, it must have been January, I think, or December, it was an icy night. And uh, changed gear going up the Ace Bray and the back of the Land Rover opened up and all the herring shot out the back and down the Ace Bray, no. slid down the Ace Bray. Oh, yuck. So the story, the, the story was in the morning that the herring, there had been so many herring in the bay that night that we tried to fix one up the hill. <laughs> that they got up the hill in the Ace Bray. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So that, yeah, that was that part of the fishing. But I mean, that was, um, you know, you'll get much better stories from, uh, from Alistair. Unfortunately, Big Ian's no longer with us, but uh, uh, he, was, well, he was an amazing man. And th they were great. They showed us, going back to your original question, they showed us how to make creels and um, particularly Big Ian was uh, really helpful. Uh, him and his crew and Tommy. Smithy and, and Alistair as well. At what point then did you think, right, I've definitely done the right thing here? Or are you, are you still wondering? Uh, <laughs> I don't think so. I've always, uh, the freedom, the, the, the freedom you get on the sea is like a freedom you can't get anywhere else. And that's still, I know that, you know, today it's different. There are licenses and rules and regulations, but there's still a freedom when you're out there. You've still got that freedom. The horizon. And exactly the horizon and, and that ability to, you know, that ability of not actually knowing. You don't know what's happening next. You don't know what's coming next. You don't know what's in the creel that's coming up. Nothing or full of lobsters, you know? And I think that's a huge, probably a huge attraction for most fishermen that are out there as the there's always this possibility that you're going to hit a jackpot. Or... Well, Kenny's talked about it. When Kenny and I have chatted in the past, he talks about it as well. It's just, it, it's more than, it's not a, a job, it's a vocation. It's a, it's part of who you are in some That's sense. It. And it's just that you are, yeah, the boat is, you know, you are part of it. It's just, yeah. you're at sea, you're, you know, that's the yeah. thing. It was the same for my dad as well, being a wee boy growing up in uh, Collinsy and Sky and elsewhere. Yeah. It was always the sea for him, always yeah. fiddling around. And that, when he was 16, that was him off. He was so away to train and now we out to the Merchant Navy stuff. And to well, the sea, the, it, it, and it just gave you that, you know, the, the, the only master there is the sea. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're not dependent on land. Yeah. Land is a nightmare. <laughs> But the sea is, uh, the sea is free.
as the years went by, it wasn't just uh, lobsters, you know, whatever opportunity they, that came up. Um, we took, you know, and we were salmon fishing. And, oh, and, and of course, we, you know, we'd, we, we would meet on our travels, lobster fishing, we'd meet uh, Pedro or Peter McLean, as, as he was properly known, but Pedro, as everybody knew him around here, and he had a vast knowledge of of everything to do with the sea and the places and the names of everything between here and um, certainly between here and, and Howen. He had uh, had this amazing knowledge. He fished at Sorn and he also uh, fished off Mingri, off, off uh, the Murachan there, which is the... the What's the Murachan? The Murachan is the, the large kind of rocky island that sits off the mouth of Mingri. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Duncan McGill talked about poaching in the Mingari Burn and saying ah, how brilliant that was. Yeah, you know? well, he probably mentioned mm. the Murakan. And so, and um, that's where the salmon net, his salmon net was was held in position there, and then he had one at Sorn. I, th- I think he actually had three. He also had one in, in off of Glengorm somewhere. How did, did uh, you, you fish salmon? Did you use net for salmon or did you fish? Yeah, no, we, we, we started um, the salmon the year. We were actually going to gill net for salmon, which is a very easy form of fishing salmon, but the the year we got the lease at Treshnish was the year the gillnet ban in Scotland came in. So we, um, it would have been the mid-70s, mid to, yeah, mid to late 70s, I suppose. And um, so we just fished a bag net, but it was a, Treshnish Head is a, well, it was, it was the north side of Treshnish Head, but it was a, such a tide going by there it was a you know quite a dangerous and difficult place to to keep a net i think the first year we had 700 fish um and the second year we we didn't have very many at all and mm-hmm. the, the fishing was beginning to decline uh at this stage by the late 70s that reminds me of one of your stories that we've we talked about previously about clochgugery uh, as well were you was that when you were fishing down there well yeah this um We'd actually been gathering in the early days. We gathered wood off the shore for the creels mm-hmm. uh, to make the creels, and, and we'd been down gathering shore, carried it up there, and we're having a piece in one of the the ruin, actually um, one of the better ruins close to the tree at Glacukuri there, um, and just sitting having a piece and looking out the window, and this figure passed with a shawl on it on the head, uh, went out, had a look, couldn't see anything. I thought it was a bit odd, and, but I just thought, well, maybe I just imagined it. And, but you know, I got quite a clear picture of a woman with a shawl on her head, yeah. dark shawl. Anyway, I went speaking to Ian Morrison's mother, Mary, and um, I never mentioned it. I just said, well, we'd been getting wood down at uh, down at the, the shore at Grakukuri. And she said, oh, no, 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 I, I could never go back there again. I'll never go back there again. And I said, oh, why, why is that? She said, oh, well, I had a bad experience here. And I, was, I was sitting in this ruin near the tree there, and this woman passed the gable end window wearing a shawl. Mm. And the hairs on my neck just because uh, I hadn't mentioned anything and I said oh, wow that, that's interesting <laughs> because uh, 
I mean, I didn't actually feel, I didn't have that bad feeling that no. she had. I, I just... It's an observation, just something that's yeah, passed. Yeah, she had a really bad feeling that made her never want to go back there. And she'd got some story about either cholera or smallpox. I think it was smallpox that the village had been, um, f you know, completely uh, uh, lost to smallpox. And that this smallpox in those days, one of the things they used to do was cut off women's hair. Um, my, I suppose a health yeah. reason or whatever the reason they did it, and that she was wearing this shawl to cover her head. Goodness, yeah. Um, but it is very pe peculiar, yeah. and uh, it is an atmospheric place. But uh, is that the, the the ruin that's got the ship graffiti in it? Exactly, like, same ruin. Yeah, it is a very atmospheric ruin. Oh, but, it is. Uh, it's also in that low lying hollow. Yeah, it is interesting, and I, do, I you know, I, I. I I just found the coincidence of that just, you know, hair-raising. I can remember some... <laughs> not so much the lobsters, but I remember experiences... Uh, I remember on our launch coming up the back of the kayak one day and the, the rudder pintles that hold the rudder in place pulled out the back of the boat. And, uh, oh, God. <laughs> and another time at Harrow. Did you get uh, home from that? Well, we kind of leant over the back of the boat and uh, <laughs> the pinto was luckily... Uh, I don't know actually whether the pinto had gone. I think it had gone and we... we we, imp we improvised <laughs> something that got us home that day. Oh. And uh, another thing, long before rope cutters came in, it was always a risk, and, and yeah. everybody did it, of getting ropes in their propeller. Right. And uh, we were in it, uh, in behind the Howland Reef, actually, uh, with our second boat, which was another wooden boat. Um, which a slightly bigger boat, this one 26 foot with a half-decker. Um, and uh, we, got a rope, we got a rope well and truly in the screw and it, it wouldn't come out. And So there was nothing for it. I went over the side of the oh boat, took my clothes off and jumped over the side of the boat and we were, we were quite pretty shallow. I mean, what my feet weren't on the bottom, but I could see the tangle okay. all round about the boat. And... Uh, hacked away at it but I, I can remember I can feel the cold mm. on the head I can feel the cold on the head yet because you have to put your head under water really to see yeah. to see to cut it off um, and that yeah that was a that was one situation to be avoided <laughs> and then another one was in the North Island and that was in the third boat the gang Warley um, again before we had a rope cutter put on it and uh we all had a complete fleet wrapped up in our prop. And uh, thankfully Robin Cow pulled us out of that one. Otherwise, uh, mm. otherwise we would, uh, we'd probably still be there yet. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, the lobsters, I, we, we, we always made a, a, a living at them. Uh, That's great. And in those days, 
we would do a, a lot other things in the winter. We'd make the creels. We'd we'd do building work. Yeah. Um, we worked any any work that was available. We'd do it. We helped some of the people down here, Kevin, Kevin Luscombe and Terry, do some of their building work during the winter. It was much more varied now when we were doing it than it is now, where everybody just fishes. Yeah. But then there there weren't the species then. There was really only lobsters. Really. Um, was that because of the nature of the marketplace? Well, there were no, there were no um, brown crab. There was no brown crab market. There was no velvet crab market. The prawns were just starting. Uh-huh. Um, the, the the two bigger boats had been prawn trawling. There was always a market for the prawn tails, uh, and then the market started for the creel. So, so the prawn tails would that be for scampi or? or for yeah, that was that was the early yes exactly for scampi and and. Uh, Nephrox. Yeah, right. they tailed them in those days. Right. Oh, Just God. Um, trawled for them and caught them and tailed them. Right. Uh, huge quantities and 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 um, so the likes of Alistair and Ian would do that. Uh, in some of the summer months, um, do a bit of lobsters, a bit of that, and uh, and uh, go to the sprats in the winter. But we did, obviously didn't have those options in a small boat. So closer to home, then how did you how did you come to establish your home life here? Then the, the two the two boys in the boys' house. <laughs> and how, what? Yeah. How did well, you meet Aileen? What, how did, what well, happened? Well, yeah, Aileen was uh, Aileen came here on a. Uh, she was a, the head teacher at Mornish. Oh, she took over from Mary Morrison. She took over from Mary exactly. Ah, right. Um, uh, I think it was eight girls, eight pupils, eight girls. Nine girls in the crowd. And uh, she had, uh, she didn't even know really where where um, where Mornish was when she took the job. <laughs> um, I mean, fantastic opportunity, what but also quite well. quite scary for her. No telephone, no, yeah. no. Uh, the only people she saw in the day were Sonny McPhail, who, who delivered the, the lunches and took the school children there, and Morag, who was the the, uh, the cook. Oh yeah, so couldn't it, it must have been Morag who took he took Morag to the school where she she cooked the meals. So yes, she came and. Uh, yeah, then she met this disreputable, filthy fisherman. <laughs> how, how did you meet? Was it in the mission? Well, she the, stayed, she stayed at the mill. Ah. That was her lodging, because obviously when she arrived, she didn't have anywhere to stay, really. Yeah. So the mill, as usual, in their generous fashion, yeah. took her in. Yeah. And uh, in those days, Ian was away in the winter on, on ships. Yeah. So there was always a bit of room in the mill then. And... Uh, so yeah, Colin, Colin can remember yet uh, the young lodger that came to stay. <laughs> there was less distractions, I suppose, in those days. No skybox, no. No skybox, no TV. No, yeah. I think the TV came to the the village, sort of from uh, somewhere up the hill, but it seemed to work only infrequently. Voodoo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and certainly out here, I mean, we didn't get electricity until uh, the late 70s. There were more people d- making things for, you know, the winter, to do in the winter, yeah. like plays yeah. and um, 
uh, a lot a lot more caring as well than there is now. I think television has has kind of put a, put a bit of an end to that in many ways. But uh, uh, that's only my view. Uh, we still see a lot of folk. Yeah. <laughs> well, it may be an age thing too, as you get a bit older, uh, as you get <laughs> less less <laughs> less people arrive on the scene. I don't oh, know. Man. But um, yeah, going back to those fishing days it was uh, it's funny because I'm just remembering now the names of the mallard boats that used to come down oh, here yeah. which were they? there was the Claytonia that was the Downies right. Peter Downey there was the excellent the wee excellent which is a lovely wee boat that was the H that was somebody Hson uh-huh. and then there was the Isabella so there were there were local boats and there were mallard boats but quite big mallard boats you know 40 to 50 feet right uh, would come, wouldn't come down here so much unless the weather was bad. But they were down the west coast of Mal. Mal was always an attraction for lobster fishermen. What do you think it is? We've talked briefly in the past about Loch Nakiel, and what what is it particularly about the prawns in Loch Nakiel? Are this? Yeah, I mean, well, the, the lochs are an amazing uh, source of life, marine life. Just, I think it's maybe the 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 combination of 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 the nature of the ground, but also the the, the the water that's flowing off the hills there, the fresh water that's bringing the down. wash off it. Yeah, I mean the native oysters there are just absolutely amazing. They grow there like they just don't grow anywhere else, especially around Elva there. Um, and even today, whereas you know most parts of the UK um, struggle with native oyster populations. Around that area, Alva, round about that area, still has strong populations of of healthy native oysters. So yeah, and and then of course you had the Treshish Islands, which were the home of lobsters. You know, I mean, uh, they'd been fished and still are fished heavily every year. How far is a lobster's territory? Because crabs, I've heard tales of crabs walking from Ireland up the west coast of Scotland. Yeah, no, (laughs) um, lobsters tend not to move very far they go hole and they go if, if they've got a good hole I mean that seems to be the way they are the crab on there the female crab on the other hand not the male crab the male crab uh, they say doesn't move very far at all but right, the yeah. female crab always moves south at least where they've released them in Orkney really they're always moving south southwest uh they don't know why exactly, but they're travelling hundreds of miles sometimes. And they think, they only think, that the reason is that they, when they release their eggs, the, the current, you know, the, the tidal current yeah. carries the eggs north. Uh, I mean, this is only uh, surmising, but, but they do know that the female crab is always moving southwest. They've, they've picked them up as as far as um, off the Outer Isles from Orkney and down as far as off Skye uh, on the west coast here. Amazing. And so so the boys now are about to uh, start tagging here, okay. which means uh, they should see some interesting results to see if they go south from here. Yeah. Um, but certainly in those days, in the early days, there was no market for crab, so... Right, okay. uh, so where's the market for crab come from? Where's that? Is it Spain? Is it China? Yeah, it's, it? it's, it's our EU friends who oh, have... Uh, God. <laughs> have, 
have created the initial market oh. for both, uh, well, for, for really all the species. No share, uh, camarade. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's bad news, really. It's but uh, more recently, China has come into play and very specific female crab of a certain size and quality. Yeah. And they've really upped the game. So uh, in the last few years, the price of crab, finally, after something like 10 or 20 years, not having really moved much, has uh, doubled in price. So not just caught up with inflation. <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's made it now probably, um, well, it'd be interesting to see the results, but certainly um, yeah. uh, a major export now for, for the fishermen from, from right around the coast. And of course the velvet crab, which is specifically really Spain, um, that's for tapas or something like that. Ah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, tapas. Uh, I mean, they love them over there. But that that was a market that I I, I think you know we 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 tried virtually every bit of fishing. Um, um, you know the the lobsters initially, and then we also fished prawns out out of uh, um, Alva Ferry actually for, really? for two or three years. Uh, and not for all the year, but for part of the year. And uh, also up at Faskadale, we fished for three years, I think, uh, up towards Faskadale. The wee gang it was just a bit small, really, for, I think it was two and a half hours it used to take us to get up there. Then the velvet fishery started, and uh, we, we fished out in Colm, did um, really well out there. It's a really steady fishery for, I guess, the best part of ten years. So, I mean, that, that made a huge difference to being able to fish really all the year round. Yeah. Plus the introduction, the, the morning t technology, the wooden creels, um, you know, nobody, you makes, nobody makes wooden creels anymore. Um, they're all uh, bought off the shelf steel creels. So, you know, whereas we, we would, when we started, we had 100 wooden creels maximum. But we didn't when we started. We had 50, I think. But then we progressed to 100 and... Eventually, with our second boat, we maybe maybe had two hundred. Um, but by the by the time we were, you know, by by now by today's standard, Kenny fishes what eight hundred creels, um, and some of them a lot more than that. You know, the super crabbers are fishing anything up to three thousand creels. That's, uh, and it's a sustainable supply. Well, so far, but. Um, you know, that's crab really, and and so far they've they've held up well, uh, but definitely lots of work needs to be done on Did research you, work, and yeah. and um, you know we're do, we're doing this now. We've got a crab box out here for for the f yeah. local fishermen. Yeah, those 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 days it was a different style of life. So you know they could finish their they could finish hauling their the bigger boats could finish hauling their creels probably certainly by early afternoon <clears throat> and, and very often um, the local boats any would, would go into Gometra. Oh. Um, they might double haul in the summertime. Okay. Half their creels, 100 creels, they might double haul out in the deeper water but uh, they'd go into Gometra and then the crack would start. Gometra Harbour, is, uh, the North Harbour there is amazing. Yeah, that's where they were in the North Harbour. Oh, it's just a lovely spot. It's amazing. Yeah. So there'd, there'd be a lot of uh, Joy, joy, and, <laughs> and, and jokes. I mean, one of the stories I heard, and 
we'll, we'll leave some names out. Of certainly, it. I can bleep over them if you say them. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> Was um, so in those days when you caught the lobsters, you packed them into wooden boxes mm. and floated them. Right. So you you pack them into your own wooden box, special specially made wooden boxes mm -hmm. for lobsters. You put exactly seventy pound weight in mm -hmm. in each box. You stack them very neatly, mm -hmm. uh, very neatly, and you could put seventy pound in. And then you would put them over. You had a line in the sea with anchors at each end, and you'd mm -hmm. uh, tie them onto this line. Mm -hmm. And of course, in Gometra Harbour, everyone would be watching to see how many boxes each boat put out after their day's catch mm -hmm. and uh, this one particular fisherman uh, well-known fisherman who was a very good fisherman uh, was coming in and these boxes were being going out by the dozen and the rest of the fishermen were wondering how on earth <laughs> they could catch so many lobsters so when darkness fell one of them rode over opened the lid of one of these boxes, because the lids are actually tied on yeah. the string. Opened the lids of these boxes, and here he'd filled them with stones. Oh, <laughs> oh. So the, it was a, a bit of a, you know, a good story to tell yeah. that they... Oh, just, yeah. 36 boxes today, <laughs> like that, yeah. But that was the kind of, a, I guess, the kind of crack that kept these guys going. Well, yeah, you know, they had... Good fun. Yeah. done crabs you've done lobster you've done salmon you've yeah. uh, done prawns yeah what led you to uh, the the wonderful uh, friend in the shell ah the oysters so yeah I was telling you that we'd done you know we we when the when the velvet crab fishery started we started to make some good money really steady money uh, right the way through the year and uh, but we thought well, everything we ever seemed to do seemed to tail off a bit. So we thought, what can we do that would, would be here, you know, a bit different and would be here forevermore. Um, and uh, we'd heard about Loch Fine Oysters, so we thought, well, let's, let's see what we can do here. Yeah. So actually we... we we employed Andy Abrahams from Collinsy. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, to come over and supply us with, I think we started with 10,000 oysters. And um, What age were they? Were they kind of seed oysters or were they quite large? From the they were about 10 grams, so they're they about a year old. Mm -hmm. And um, we we got um, backing from from HIE or was it HIDB then? I'm not mm, sure. Probably. Uh, 1990 this was when Islands we started. Development yeah. We certainly got backing uh, to start up and uh, we got going and we, it seemed to grow quite well down there and uh, of course it's, it's on our doorstep here down in the Loch um, and uh, got really enthusiastic into it. The kind of people that were doing it were interesting, interesting individuals. Totally, yeah. Uh, you know, like Andy Abrams yeah. and uh, um, quite a few of the state owners uh, also were, Jamie Howard had a go at it yeah. and uh, 
Um, uh, so Nick, we got Nick Mawinney as well. Nick Mawinney, yeah. yeah. Well, Nick Nick came along a wee bit later, I think. Right. Um, but yeah, he, he's 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 got going on it too. Um, got all individuals, you know. Um, yes. And uh, anyway, um, so it seemed to do all right. So we the following year we bought another twenty odd thousand, and and the following year another twenty, and suddenly by the year three they were coming to fruition. And all of a sudden, we had stuff to sell. Uh, only thing was, we couldn't find any <laughs> anywhere to sell them in to. the marketplace yet. Yeah. So I think those first ones we actually sold to a company up north, who were attempting to supply one of the supermarkets. I think it was Waitrose they were attempting to supply. Oh gosh! Um, well, that's come full circle then. Yeah, it has. So I, this okay. So the, the first trail, we trailer load went up there, and we thought, oh well, that's that. And uh, then we got an opportunity to 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 join a, a fledgling um, cooperative yeah. called the Scottish Shellfish Marketing Group. Uh, in those days, they were working out of a porter cabin at the back of Loch Fine. Went and uh, spoke to the, the the manager there, and he said, "Yes, okay, great." Fantastic. Uh, and within a short time, I was a director of it, and <laughs> a shorter time again, I was the vice chairman of it, mm. and um, it was growing really fast, mainly mainly through mussels, not through right, okay, through oysters. Although there were, so there were an equal number of oyster growers then. As to muscle growers. Where were Invalosa our uh, main growers? Invalosa hadn't growers. actually started at that stage. They didn't, must have started late 90s, I would okay. think. Right. Um, um, and uh, initially they, they sold privately and then they joined in mm -hmm. the marketing group. And Douglas now, of course, is vice chairman of the marketing group. So it came from very, all of, all of us actually, it came out of a necessity to yeah. sell. And we were all very much in it together and all very much at the same level of starting up and, um, you know, not huge turnovers, small turnovers. Um, and with all the problems that came with all of that. But within a short time, moved out of the Porta Cabin at Loch Fine and leased a factory in Bells Hill. Brilliant. And... Uh, Within an even shorter time, it looked like it was going to go bust. Ah. <laughs> However, we we all pulled together and it uh, it came right, um, and it now has a twenty seven million pound turnover. <laughs> That's brilliant. Uh, employing I don't know fifty or sixty people. And is that from all over the west coast or all over Scotland? It's itself? all over Scotland. Fantastic. Yeah, all the way from the main suppliers of the muscle growers in Shetland. Right. Okay. Um, and uh, there are not so many oyster growers now. In fact, there's only two oyster growers, but we're still in there. Yeah. And uh, um, it's it's quite a significant business now. It's brilliant. And uh, yeah, the cooperative principle is a is a very good principle because it does mean that you, you know, on the face of it, you have a say in how that business is run, and. Uh, that's quite important. It's a bit like our freedom thing again with the sea. You've, yeah. you've got a little bit of freedom uh, to say the direction of how things can go. 
Uh, so I'm, I'm a big believer in in that kind of um, autonomy. Autonomy, yeah. yeah. I know there's a place for private as well, but uh, I think we've we've proven as being now the um, really the only suppliers to the supermarkets of uh, growing shellfish in Scotland uh, that, that, that this actually does work. So yeah, now it's come from those very small beginnings where now have something like four million oysters between uh, our own Loch Loch Cuin here and uh, um, some over in Loch Cuin as well and um, um, and the turnover of about 600,000 mature oysters every year. Which is extraordinary. Uh, and and so most of that, that goes through the cooperative out into the, the, the marketplace. But where, who, who are the buyers for these? So Waitrose you mentioned, but are there other yeah, who else buyers? There, there are not so many. The, the, the cooperative really deals with the big retailers like Waitrose and um, Tesco's and Morrison's. Um, Le- the new ones on the block too, Lidl. Lidl do oysters. Yeah, Lidl. That's brilliant. Well, they only do them on special occasions, but they do. They did did them at Christmas time. Uh, I mean, a big feather in our cap was Marks and Spencers. Yeah. Which again, it was only at Christmas, but it was very successful. Also, the Island Bakery uh, supplied to Marks and Spencers as well. So there's ah, two right. mall businesses, yeah. at least two mall which businesses, because they're very demanding. Yeah. Um, yeah, as regards, yeah. you know. Um, uh, the product and the care of the product. Certainly bloody well costs enough. <laughs> yeah, but they were very pleased. So, so last year was the first time that they'd ever, ever dealt in live shellfish before. Uh, the Marks and Spencers tend not to like live things, I suspect. Mm-hmm. So that was a success. Um, and uh, we, d- we deal with a few, uh, locally we deal with all the restaurants around and about. And um, uh, on the mainland, not so many really. We don't like to tread on anybody's. You know, there are other oyster growers around the Oban area, and we wouldn't yeah. tread on their yeah. uh, feet. But um, in the cities, there's one or two restaurants. But really, the bulk of what the cooperative sells is through the supermarkets, and that suits us fine. We can get get um, bulk, a bulk lot away every week. So the oysters, when they're growing, uh, they are growing on. They, they start off from seed oysters, which are tiny, tiny little, tiny things. Yeah. Where do you buy them in from? Where do they come from? You don't grow them here, do you? No. So that's right. I mean, um, there are two hatcheries in in the UK that are disease free. Mm-hmm. Scotland is unique in being a disease free oyster um, country. Yeah. Uh, I mean, when I say unique, it really is unique. Yes, you've said about France in the past, the yeah. issues France have had, and also Ireland, unfortunately, Exactly. As well. Yeah. So we are adamant that we only take seed from disease-free hatcheries. Yeah. It's a bit limiting because there are only a couple in, in the UK, one in Guernsey and one in Cumbria. So that's the choice, and we tend to take from both yeah. at times. Uh, and uh, it's, it's they're more expensive because they have a lower turnover than the big French companies 
and the same with the Irish, but but that's the way we want to deal. It's an insurance policy. You can't yeah. risk a, a, a crop dying. Yeah. Because the, the tales you've told me of, of, of the French yeah. crops dying, you know, Absolutely. A, a beach it's, just it's, reeking. And it's scary. and Awful uh, thing. Um, I mean, it's not to say that it can't happen here, but no. we, we, you know, we're trying to minimise that, to minimise that by ensuring that the stock that we take is disease-free. Disease free. So that, that's where they come, and they come at um, um, five millimetre in size. <laughs> not even uh, a fingernail. <laughs> no, much smaller than that. And now we, um, Gordon, um, my son, puts them on the long lines in the outer part of the loch yeah. to start them off. Yeah. And they do really well out there. This is beautiful. They, they, this is uh, they're like lanterns, Chinese lanterns, right. aren't they? This they are balloon lantern cages. Yeah, and they tumble. He was saying. Yeah. I, I, um, I was talking to Gordy on Twitter the other night about it because Gordy's Twitter presence is beautiful. He's always showing lovely, yeah. lovely photos of what's going on. That's right. And uh, the lantern nets. I'm always fascinated because we can see when he's out putting the, the lines out at the start of the season. If we're in our bedroom, like, oh, what's Gordy doing? Yeah. Um, but yeah, these the these lovely Chinese lanterns that they. The, as the sea goes through them, it tumbles them in a beautiful yeah, way, so that their exactly. shells get this roundedness that's um, really. They're good quality and a lovely colour. Yeah. Good shape. They're really beautiful. Uh, it's worked out well. I mean, I was very sceptical uh, at the start. Um, this, is young, this is so gaudy, the next generation yeah, trying out new exactly. things. Yeah, exactly. I, I so. wondered whether it would work, but it has worked. <laughs> and um, so he, you know, and. <laughs> he's, prog he's progressed the business considerably because no, in the early days we would buy it, as I said, at 10 grams, which is one year on. Yeah. And there's a cost in buying them at 10 grams. There's also a, yeah. a supply problem in buying them at that size because yes, not everybody has 10 gram oysters. So yeah. you, one year you get them, another year you couldn't get them. So this gives us a security of year in, year out, knowing that you buy five millimeter yeah. um, a spat from a hatchery. Mm -hmm and into the sea and by the end of October you've got them up to you know anything up to three four five grams that's where the photos were from from Gordy uh, over the it. weekend there and it was just fab so once they've gone from the the the, the lantern the long lines they go on to trestles yeah and what's what's the function of a kind of trestle system what how does that work so the trestle trestle system is intertidal and that in other words you you, you can you can walk around it when the tide goes out um, I mean, from ease of handling, it's it's great. You know, yeah. you can get your tractor and trailer around it. Yeah. Um, you also to 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 have kept the oysters out in in lantern nets or anything else in the sea permanently. We believe softens the oysters too much. They become um, because of, they never get hardened off in the air. They become very soft. They're almost like clams. They'll they'll open and shut like a clam, mm. with very soft shell. If you leave them too long, um, I mean others may disagree with that, but that's how we we believe it. Um, so after after a whole summer's growth, we like to get them onto a trestle where they start to get exposed there. They toughen up. They yeah. become. You need to get them tougher and hardier for the ultimate time when they're going to travel travel and be up the shore for for yeah. a longer period um it all it all also means that they don't get um you know uh, uh barnacle growth or anything else going on which you get in yeah. the more exposed sea areas yeah. um 
it's much cleaner down there because of the fresh water that's going past the oyster beach. It's also important to say as well that the, these aren't the native oysters that you grow. No, no, these aren't. Uh, there are native oysters down there, which, which, uh, funnily enough, are improving because we're providing the underneath. They like the underneath of the trestles to hang on to. Lovely, oh gosh. So yeah, frequently we're finding all these natives underneath yeah. the, the bags, which we just peel off and oh, put on the seabed. Just briefly on on the the Pacific oyster as well. What, why why uh, we've talked about this before, I know, yeah. but why um, why would you choose the Pacific oyster for this part of the world? Yeah, I mean it's a good question because uh, you you'd think the native oyster would be the natural thing to do, but. Um, the natives are really fussy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this is Scotland in general. Yeah, you mean? <laughs> they like to be on their own. They don't like to be trapped in bags. They, <laughs> Unions, they, um, they grow yeah. quite well when they're small. Mm-hmm. But the minute they look like they're reaching maturity, they go and die on you. They don't like the cold. If they're up the shore too long and it's frosty, they'll die. They don't like the heat. You can't touch them when they're spatting because they're quite vulnerable then. Um, they're just a, night, a bit of a nightmare. And they, <laughs> they take five to seven years to grow, to, yeah. to become a mature yeah. um, oyster. Yeah. The Pacific oyster, which is growing all around the world, different, slightly different types of Pacific oyster, but generally roughly the same, um, growing right around the world hardy, um, I mean it isn't disease resistant because we know there's diseases, but they are generally fast growing. So in, in Scotland we can get, get them to marketable size within three years. Fantastic. Um, in some countries they can get them to marketable size within one year. Really? In, I don't know. In, in warm countries. You but know, then Australia. you get, get the risk of spatting though with that. You get, you do get the risk of spatting, exactly, and you also get much, much higher risk of death, mortalities and diseases. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, it's a bit like the trees in Scotland. They're, they're a bit slow growing, but they're quality. They're hardy, yeah. So they, yeah, the native, there's a big push at the moment on native r- restoration, um, and that's worth, thinking about places like Alva, I think. When we, um, I had my stag night on Alva and uh, took, uh, one of my best friends is a, a chef and a hotel critic and uh, he, we all traipsed across with Colin Morrison over to the, the south side of Alva yeah. and we had clams, scallops, having scallops. scallops, yeah. having scallops um, and it was fantastic, really, really nice. And uh, Colin found a native oyster, a really, real big, really yeah. big one. And Adrian, my friend who uh, loves fine food and fine living, tried it. And he yeah. said he'd never had a better oyster in his whole life. Yeah. It was one of the most extraordinary oysters he's ever had. Yeah. Well, I, 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 I think that uh, we talked about this earlier. I think that the, the native oysters around Alva are quite unique, and yeah. uh, I think it could probably, with the right um, a, the right work done on it, and the right restoration techniques. Yeah. You know, reintroducing, using the real, using the stock that's there. Yeah. But producing them in a hatchery condition, yeah, and then reintroducing the small ones, I think it could be something that could um, actually provide at least a part-time living for somebody over a very specific yeah period window so, a, a window a window of, a window of yeah. time yeah. Uh, with a license and a catching qu- um, quantity you know like a quota yeah 
Um, and that could be sustainable for the future. And, and, and native oysters fetch a very big price because they're in much demand. So um, this may be something for the, the Alva community to think about in the future. Um, so yeah, I seem to have, um, from those early days of uh, struggling away in a wee open boat and, and totally unsuitable clothing, I can remember. <laughs> I can remember feeling very cold at times in the, in the open launch. A boat actually incidentally built in Tyree. Mm. She was she was called Tyree Maid mm. and uh, built by a family out there who, who still got pictures of, of them building three of these boats. And, and it was a fantastic boat, really good. I wish I had that boat yet. Um, she was such a good boat, sea boat. You speak very fondly of going wearily though as well. You're... Oh yeah, yeah, I mean, that's the boat we had the longest and um, Alistair McLean had her before us and uh, um, he did well in her, we did well in her and she's still doing well today. She's now back where she came from around about the Ballahoolish area. Uh, I think that she was built in the 70s up in Orkney, fiberglass boat of course. Oh, right, okay. Right. Um, but very, very, very strong wee boats, both Alistair and ourselves. I've always spoken so highly of the gang Warley. Yeah. Um and he's had a lot of boats over his his time, um, a lot of good boats over his time too. But I think he's probably got a soft spot for the gang Warley too. Um, there's many a crew going over the side of that boat. few years we concentrated on the oysters and now, now George is out of that, well and truly out of that and uh, and um, Gordon my son now is in charge of the oysters and uh, obviously I still keep an interest in things but um, And Kenny your other son is in fishing? And Kenny's got his own boat and does very well indeed uh, in the fishing, so the second generation yeah. uh, fisherman who's and who's successful. Yeah. Um, and Christy's just about to have a baby in, uh, yeah, yeah. in Spain. The odd one out is in Spain. <laughs> but the rest of them are here. Yeah. Which is, you know, when you, you go back to those early days, could you ever have imagined yeah. any of this? But then that's, I suppose, that's the interesting stories about people's lives, isn't it? How these odd circles come round and... Uh, who would ever have thought that your two sons would be next door to to you and, and one of them fishing and one doing the oysters um but yeah i yeah i still i miss i miss the fishing i do miss the fishing and i keep my hand in because i mm. i like to help where i can i i hope i do help where i can the fishing community by you know, representing them. Yeah, uh, the Malfans. Um, and the Fishermen's Association um, and trying to, to, to help them because I know how difficult it is when you're fishing yeah. to do that. Um, and, you know, it's a skill that I can have, I can communicate and, and uh, uh, I'm able to put pen to paper so yeah. I can 
do that part on their behalf and anything I can do that makes their lives better and easier then I'm happy to do. So I keep my hand in that way and of course doing that I'm well aware of everything that's going on <laughs> politically and fishing wise uh, which, which of course I'm interested in. And so I suppose that's really the role I'm, I see myself in doing now more, more so is, is, is guiding and uh, uh, helping where I can do. And uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's quite lots of things I've touched and many of them not done that well on and, and some of them survived, but you know, yeah. we're here today and that's the main thing. That's the story of of people, I think that's the story of people everywhere. Is you try things, you keep trying yeah. things, and you keep yeah. moving, you keep seeing what what keeps going. And when when you find something that sticks, it's very rarely that it's just that one thing you do. You build onto it and yeah. around it. It's it's crafting. It's exactly. And I mean, I have to say, I really do have to say, if it hadn't been for those early people like Biggie and McDonald, who'd you know kind of took us under his wing, and and we, Alistair McLean, and. Uh, you know, all the fishermen actually, um, you know, and if it hadn't been for them, we'd probably not have survived. Um, that's so that's nice. another reason why, you know, helping others, I think, is the right thing to do. Um, and, they, you know, they were pretty tolerant when you think about it, these two lads who might be, I don't suppose they saw us any, any, at any time as competition, but... Um, they could just have ignored us completely. And uh, they didn't do that, which is great. Thank you very much to Nick Turnbull for his time there. Couple of things from the podcast. Um, if you want to follow uh, Isle of Mull oysters on Twitter, you can do. You can just type Isle of Mull oysters into Twitter, or you can look under at G Turnbull One, which is Gordon Turnbull's uh, Twitter handle, and you'll find all sorts of stories and uh, pictures there about the life of the oyster farm and how it changes and develops through the seasons. And it's a really lovely Twitter presence. If you want to see. Nick, Gordy and Kenny in operation working, I suggest you have a look at YouTube and type in Mull Seafood Trail. You'll find a video that I made some time ago for them there. And thank you again to Gus Stewart for the aerial footage in that as well. I've just got back to Mull from Barra and uh, as I said at the start of the podcast, and I've been working there with Shona Thompson on the Made by the Sea project, which is using uh, community archive footage and uh, footage found about the communities in various different archives around the place uh, to share that back with younger members of the community to then encourage them to make their own footage in response to this, which will then be shown in the screen machine uh, later on in the year. So that's a a great project that's been funded by HIE and Regional Screen Scotland and uh, it's an absolute delight to work on it, so I'm looking forward to, to doing more of that. This podcast has been sponsored by Island Bakery, and you can find their website at www.islandbakery.co.uk. The sponsorship from the bakery pays for the hosting and technical things on the website for the podcast. It takes a long time to put this podcast together. So if you wanted to donate, uh, you're very welcome to. Uh, just the price of a cup of coffee, wherever you would be, would be fantastic. And you can do that. You can find details on what we do in the winter.wordpress.com. If you wanted to donate, you're more than welcome, as I say. But if not, 
don't worry at all. I'd much rather you listened than, than didn't. Uh, and uh, yeah, anyway, thank you very much for your time. And I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Cheers.